Bring It On is a public affairs program exploring the people, issues, and events affecting the African-American communities in South Central Indiana and beyond. Bring It On is a forum for the people, by the people, produced by an independent team of volunteers working at the studios of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana, and financially supported by listeners like you. Welcome to Bring It On, and this is Memorial Day, May 27th, 2019. I'm Chantal LaFontante, on today's announcer, and welcome to listener-supported WFHB, Bloomington, Bedford, Edithville, Nashville, Community Radio for South Central Indiana. Today, right now, the high is 84 degrees, and on today's special broadcast, we will be re-airing some special uh, conversations on issues relating to the African-American experience in Indiana. In honor of the Memorial Day, the Bring It On crew has prepared a special best of broadcast from our archives. Let's, bring wi- let's begin with a pre-recorded conversation from September 9th of 2013 with hosts Bev Smith and William Hosea with longtime Bring It On contributors Gladys Devane and Liz Mitchell. They are discussing a different kind of slavery that was common practice within Indiana Territory during the early years of Indiana statehood, called indentured servitude. Three Indiana women known to petition to Indiana Supreme Court for release from indentured servitude occurred in these years. Their names were Mary Bateman Clark, Polly Strong, and a woman only known as Elizabeth. Here's that broadcast from 2013. known to petition the Indiana Supreme Court for release from indentured agreements were Mary Bateman Clark, Polly Strong, and a woman only known as Elizabeth. Our two guests for this evening are Gladys Devane and Liz Mitchell. Both are longtime contributors to Bring It On, and both have done research on the topic of Indiana's indentured servants. They're joining us tonight to share their respective insights on this bit of unheralded Indiana history. Ladies, welcome to Bring It On. Thank you. And Gladys, Gladys. I I want to start with you. Um, How long have you been doing research on indentured servitude? Well, I I really don't consider myself a researcher on indentured servitude. I'm a storyteller. I write and tell stories. My primary interest is those stories those stories related to uh, African-American issues uh, and life here in this country uh, with African-Americans and taking us back to slavery. Uh, I was asked to, I was given a court document and asked to write a story based on this court document. Uh, The court document was the a copy of the, the original court document for this woman, Elizabeth. Uh, she was referred to in the document as Elizabeth, a woman of color. She brought suit in Harrison County against a man named Benjamin Withers. 
she was indentured to him. All I had was the court document. Uh, I contacted a man named uh, Richard Day. Uh, he's a historian uh, and he works out of Vincennes. And he filled me in on everything that he knew about indentured servitude. And his expertise was really with, about Polly Strong and Mary Bateman Clark. Uh, but he sort of set the tone for what the issues were, what was going on at that time. And then I talked with um, James Madison, a retired professor at Indiana University and a very well-known historian, and he's done a great deal of work on, on Indiana history. And he then talked to me about socially what was going on, politically what was going on, the laws during that time. So given the background information and the court document, I drafted the story of Elizabeth based on what I gleaned from the court document and what I knew to be happening during that time. So I really don't consider myself as a historian or really digging into research. I, I just wanted to know, okay, how can I create a narrative that is believable and that will reflect what could have happened to this African-American woman when she sued for her, uh, her freedom. I want to roll this back just a little bit and define indentured servitude for the audience because, as we said in our introduction, slavery prohibited by Indiana law. So what is this concept, this thing called indentured servitude, and why would one sue for for freedom, Miss Liz? <laughs> <laughs> Never too late. <laughs> Jump right in. Snuck in here. It, it was just a way to hold them to slavery, mm-hmm. uh, just like um, sharecropping was just another right. form of slavery. So this, if we're talking about Mary Bateman Clark? No, we are talking, well, well, Mary Bateman Clark was one of the three. Okay. Mm-hmm. Okay, I was talking about Elizabeth, the one that I had written the story about. For. Okay. Mm-hmm. Well, I know in Mary Bateman Clark's uh, circumstance, she was forced to, to sign her ex on a paper saying that she volunteered to be an indentured servant or else she would have been sent back over to Kentucky, Tennessee, I can't remember now where she originated from. Mm -hmm. So it was just another way. Getting around the paperwork Mm -hmm. to still hold the slaves, but on paperwork, you weren't a slave. These agreements, you said forced, done out of fear. And also, part B to the question, was it considered a step up from slavery in, let's say, Mary Bateman Clark's or Polly Strong's or Elizabeth's mind? Would they have seen it as a step up? No, you weren't getting paid. A okay. step up is getting some getting some dollars. Some coins, uh-huh. some dollars. Uh-huh. So if you weren't getting those dollars and you were forced to work out in the hot sun or in the house or cleaning chamber pots, I don't know which would be worse. I'd probably take the sun over the chamber, chamber pots. pots. But yes. if you're doing this against your will, then it's not a step up. 
Mm-hmm. And so much so, you know, she sued for her freedom. And she proved that she was indeed being held against her will as a slave. And there was at that time a law that, that, that stated slavery, neither slavery nor indentured servitude, meaning against your will. Mm-hmm. So the law specifically the, right. quoted indentured servitude. That's right. Now, the fact that these women sued brings up uh, uh, another question in my mind. I just can't imagine them back during that time walking into an attorney's office and now I want to file well, a lawsuit. Suit, right. So what organizations were around to support them or to give them help during that time? There were, I, I can't speak to the organizations, but there were individuals. There were individuals. The attorney that handled uh, Elizabeth's case was uh, from New York. Uh, the one that handled, I think, Mary Bateman's, uh, Clark's, uh, was from New York. And they, he, there, were, there was a group of them. One of the things I was interested in knowing was, were they Quaker? Mm-hmm. You know, uh, why did they take this mission on? I couldn't determine whether or not this person... But he was, quote, a troublemaker because not only <coughs> did, he, did he help Elizabeth and some others, there were, there were a number of cases that went before the court that were rejected. We just know of the three that were successful. When you're thinking about Indiana and Indiana history, help us paint a picture of what was happening in society at that point in time what period of history are we talking and just my thought the way I was raised wasn't Indiana North wasn't Indiana better wasn't Indiana not as involved in slavery who wants to pull it out (laughs) we're looking at each other who's going to answer that that one okay um, at the time that Elizabeth got her freedom. Indiana was not yet a state. It was still mm-hmm. a territory. Mm-hmm. We're talking about 1815. Um, and, and as I wrote the story, she said, I got my freedom in 1815 in Harrison County, Indiana. Indiana wasn't even a state. That was 48 years before Abraham Lincoln freed the slaves. Yes. Mm-hmm. So, <clears throat> but at that time, Indiana, from what I understand from the information that, uh, uh, that uh, James Madison, when I talked with him and he talked about what was going on at the time, uh, it appeared that Indiana wanted to attract people to come to, um, into the state. They couldn't do that being a slave state. Uh, and they had... They, so there was a there was a a conflict. You had wealthy uh, property owners from Virginia and Kentucky that wanted slaves. You had poor uh, or not so wealthy farmers who could not compete with them, and therefore they would not want to come into a slave state. Mm-hmm. 
So Indiana is going to be admitted to the Union as a non-slave state. So it was all economics in my mind. Mm -hmm. Yes, it was. It was economics. The poor white farmers wanted to come here and work for pay. Mm-hmm. And they couldn't do that if Indiana if was had. a slave right. state. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so let's so, let's for the audience let them not get it confused as travel and tourism. It was solely mm-hmm. it was economic. Yeah, yeah. yeah everything was economic <laughs> as as is today. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. And Indiana too really didn't want blacks here. That's true. Because at, at some point, and I maybe you know the dates, they offered blacks fifty dollars to get out and go to back to Africa. And during this time. If blacks came into Indiana, there was a law that said, and, and that part of Indiana, they had to pay $500 in order to, I guess, ensure that they would, I don't know. Uh, but th- this was on the books. In fact, $500 was put up for Elizabeth to ensure that while the courts decided what should be done with her, she would not, you know, run away. $500 was a lot of money mm-hmm. at that time. I'll take it. A lot of money at that time. Even and, fifty, even that $50 was a lot. And so, but these three men, you know, put up this yeah. money and pleaded her case, and she was given her freedom. So, I don't want to fast forward too much, but... What became of the women after the Indiana Supreme Court rendered their decision? We have no idea. Because we had no last name on any of, well, at least for Elizabeth. Right. Okay. Woman of color. Yeah, for Elizabeth. We have no, I, she, she just disappeared. I mean, we have no idea what happened to mm-hmm. her. Mm-hmm. Polly Strong, still they could not tell me at I think it was 15 years or so later there was a woman when they did the census there was a woman still living in uh, LaSalle's house and they don't know if it was Polly they don't know if I mean, we have no idea what happened to her mm-hmm. when you're looking at just what we know mm-hmm. I find it unique that one, three women sued because even if this is a non-slave state, women were still pretty well incapacitated in terms of rights. Mm -hmm. So that's amazing to me. And then to go down for Elizabeth, who had no last name listed, but to be dignified as a woman of color and not a lesser name or a descriptor. During that time, the court... In in a in a number of the court cases, they they would specify uh, Joe Blow, uh, a white man or a white woman, and when it was a person of of color, they would say a Negro or mm-hmm. a person of color. That, mm-hmm. So that term was used quite often. Quite literally. In, yeah, quite quite often and. Yeah, uh, in the in the court documents, and it was a respectful terminology. It is because even today, if you find anyone nineties in their late eighties and nineties, you will hear 
black or white, mm-hmm. the terminology color. color. Mm-hmm. And that's yeah. a respectful terminology. Mm-hmm. They don't like black or anything else. Mm-hmm. That's offensive to yes, that age group. Absolutely. And we're going to ID just for the audience listening that they are indeed listening to Bring It On. And you're on WFHB 91.3 FM. And we are discussing Hoosier land history, Indiana history, indentured servitude. And we have Gladys Devane and Liz Mitchell on the other side of the microphones helping us piece together some stories about three women who sued for their freedom before the Indiana Supreme Court. Pretty remarkable. Let's go back and talk about women. What was happening for women at this time? I don't want you to get the idea that they mm-hmm. walked into court and said, Correct. I want to sue, sue. you. Mm-hmm. you know, I, I, I want to sign a petition. Mm-hmm. They were approached by someone. They were recruited. They were recruited, mm-hmm. right, by people who believed they were being wrong, treated, uh, not fairly wrong. Correct. They, they, I mean, they, they, they needed to right this wrong. So their story actually ended up being a part of a larger movement that they probably had no knowledge of. Absolutely. And since the whole situation for the state of Indiana was based on economics, then the court's decision was a little bit disingenuous, would you say? Okay. I mean, it wasn't really sincere. They weren't actually thinking we're going to ensure that these people's uh, civil rights are, are protected. No. Now, what happened with Elizabeth and Polly, and when, when Indiana became a state then, that and 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 they were still getting uh, these petitions. The Supreme Court of Indiana said, "We've got to make it abundantly clear that the law is there shall be no slavery or indentured servitude." And so then they set out to render these decisions so that this practice would, in fact, stop. And I'm going to piggyback on my partner here because what I hear him saying, because he's totally capable of speaking for himself, but... (laughs) From time to time. From time to time. But let me help him (laughs) to say that the court wanted to make it abundantly clear was the court's, and we don't know this, but we can speculate, was the court's motivation purely to help and clarify the law or was it economics to make sure that Indiana went on to statehood as a non-slave, non-indentured servitude state. I personally think it was more economics. Uh, that's my personal. Yeah. Yeah. More economic. Now, yeah. there are others who will say, oh, that was not the case. Yeah. Well, we know behind everything is the money. Money. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Even e- today, even like Gladys said. Even so today. It's, it's the money. Show me the money. Liz mm-hmm. is reading my mind. You, you have ESPN, obviously. <laughs> Now, from both of your perspectives, historian, storyteller, what about these three women? What about their stories really intrigues you and gets to you that makes you want to comb through and talk to various individuals and get to as much as you can find out about these ladies? I'm thinking how brave they were to do that. Because let's say you're Mary Bateman Mm -hmm. and I own you Mm -hmm. and you're suing for your freedom. How do you think I'm going to treat you until you get your freedom? I'm going to be mad. Mm -hmm. How dare you? Because, you know, you're not human. 
and you're part of, I own you, and there's work to be done. Mm-hmm. So life might be a little bit difficult for you because you're ruffling feathers. You're starting something. Not to mention you put my business out in the street. Hey, there you go. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's interesting that you put it this way because when I sat down to write the story of Polly, Polly Strong, <clears throat> I had the chronological order of what had happened to Polly. To, to Polly. To okay. Polly. And it was very sketchy. And so now I'm to create this story. Polly was the daughter of a slave. The slave belonged to this French person, LaSalle, who settled in Vincennes. And she gave birth to Polly. He said she was, by the way, it was sort of, he was sort of grandfathered in. He came here with this slave, even though Indiana said no slavery in the state of Indiana because he came from Virginia into Indiana with this slave. They permitted him to keep his slaves. Mm-hmm. And so Polly's mother was one of his slaves. So she, he, she gives birth to Polly. Polly wants to be free. And Polly goes to, to court three different times. Uh, and finally, you know, the Supreme Court you know, freed her. But his take on it was, your mother is a slave. I own your mother. You are a slave. Therefore, you know, I own you. So he owned Polly and Polly's brother. <clears throat> and when you talk about that environment, he owned a hotel and a saloon. And I have her telling the story of what it was like having to go back to him when the first time you know, her freedom was denied. How almost impossible it was to, to, to live. You know, mm-hmm. Since their stories, uh, I mean, their uh, petition ended up at the state Supreme Court, mm-hmm. were there any lower courts along the way that ruled against them? I mean, did they win this case on appeal? or Absolutely. Well, the Polly yeah. uh, the, the case, yes. And I believe Mary Bateman Clark, too, had to go through the process before it reached the Supreme Court. So they were denied, denied, they were denied and right. yeah. approved. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. And then the man that represented Mary Bateman Clark, he ended up, he had to leave Vincent. Oh, he was a beaten to death. Yeah. Almost beaten he death. was almost beaten to death and mm-hmm. he had to leave. And that was uh, mm-hmm. actually uh, part of my next question. Weren't their lives in danger at some point? Absolutely. That's why I said I, I admire how brave, bravery. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah, how brave they were. Mm-hmm. And so they would go to court and have their lawyers represent them, say all these things about their masters uh, or, or employers. And then they had to go back home to the same environment and continue to work for this person. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. How does one freely get away to go to court? How does well, that happen? Court, if the court says that you, you must are to appear, you, mm-hmm. you are have to, to, uh, you appear. Have to appear. Yeah. Now, mm-hmm. in the Polly story, in the story that I drafted, <clears throat> the narrative that I drafted for Polly, I didn't have Polly in court because during that time, you know, the, she would not have been. 
The only time I had her in court is the appeal when she when they took it to the Supreme Court, to the Indiana Supreme okay. Court. But I had her outside the court, and her attorney, uh, the person representing her, is pleading her case in, in, in the court. This is, I'm looking at the terms of the agreement, the indentured servitude agreement. Elizabeth is indentured to Benjamin Weathers and or heirs until age 52. Mm-hmm. Elizabeth is provided food, lodging, and wearing apparel in exchange for services. Elizabeth is to be treated kindly and well. At the end of said term, Elizabeth is to receive a suite of a new homemade cloth, mm-hmm. cotton specify, a pair of stockings, and a pair of shoes. At the end of my time... 52 years. 52 years... Yeah. I can get a pair of shoes, stockings, and and, that, and that's probably being kind, because you know a, a lot of people probably think there were laws for uh, for the masters, for the slave owners, that everybody had to abide by certain rules and regulations, and each master did what he wanted to. Each plantation had their own laws, so some might have been kind. And others were cruel. There, there was a case I read about where one plantation owner never clothed his servants, and they were chained up at night like you chain a dog. And they were, uh, no matter what the weather was, they were naked. Mm-hmm. So you just you did whatever you felt like doing because there were no rules and regulations on how you should treat your slave. They were yours. You did what you wanted to. That was more about somebody being sadistic. Mm-hmm. Now, and I'm going to flash forward this to something that perhaps folks are dealing with media-wise right now, and that's the butler. There's the opening scene to the butler mm-hmm. where it looks like we're taking a look at something that's classically slavery, but it's just a little bit different. Was that? Sharecropping. It? Sharecropping. Which okay. is another way of slavery. Mm-hmm. It's like At the end of the year, you normally end up owing. Right. Everything belonged to the owner of that land, mm-hmm. and you work for them. Starting at about, I did a story, um, live interview with a woman, 14 kids. She had 14 siblings, and they were sharecroppers in Tipolo, Mississippi. Mm-hmm. And she started at five years old. Her mother had made little sacks for the babies to go out there and pick cotton. Mm-hmm. And many people may not know that in Indiana, <clears throat> many of my relatives came up from the South, as many of ours did sitting mm-hmm. in this room, came up from Alabama, Tennessee, located in what we call the small farms in Gary. But that was still happening. That was just a way of yeah. life. It, sharecropping, it, I don't know if it got any better in terms of its treatment, but certainly that concept of you're turning over a portion of your proceeds or most or all of your proceeds mm-hmm. just to be able to till the land and take a little bit home. Mm-hmm. That was, that, oh my gosh, 50s, 60s? They were oh, yeah. still going on. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, clearly, clearly. And you, you really, really weren't handed money. You did no. all the work. Mm-hmm. Your kids did all the work. And then you took it to the market. And like in this case... Um, this woman, her family, her father worked for a man named Mr. Box. He got the money. 
and he may or may not have divvied any, anything out. And actually, the homes that you were living in, those were slave cabins. A lot of them stayed in those cabins up until the 60s, 70s, mm-hmm. depending on where you were. The slave market down in uh, South Carolina, Charleston, they turned that into Section 8 housing. So you never got away from, you, you, you're, you're going to be kept right down mm-hmm. where you're supposed to be because mm-hmm. you're subhuman. There's a spot in Michigan City, Indiana, that's very much near the lake. It was called the Patch. And it's pretty much that same kind of concept. It went through various iterations, and now it became, I think, public housing, and now they've torn it down, and a casino now sits on it. But it, it was that same variation, you just you different location. You were not going to get away from it. Mm-hmm. We're going to keep you right there. So mm-hmm. let me get one last question in there before, uh, before Beth takes over here. Yeah. <laughs> that state Supreme Court decision, did that actually put an end to indentured servitude? Were, were there any residual... Uh, Supposedly, that was supposed to end indentured servitude. But in reality, there were still known cases of indentured servitude long after that. But at least it gave uh, some legitimacy to the law. And, uh, and but Indiana proudly said, "Oh, we you know we had no slavery." Well, I yes, you did. Yeah, yes, you did. Um, but it did not end it. It was supposed to have ended it. In the last two minutes that we have, why is it important that we know these particular stories, especially about our own local state, our own Indiana? Why do we need to know this? Well, for me, uh, the younger people need that sense of pride. They, they need to remember from whence they came from. And these women and the women before them and the struggles, we need to know that. Because how dare you sit up here and do drugs? How dare you get drunk? How dare you allow yourself to be incarcerated? Look at where we come from. Look at the strength that we came from. And I think it's important to teach it and teach the truth so that our young people can walk down the street like they own the sidewalk, and they do. I think it's most important that, as she said, Mm -hmm. that uh, our youngsters know, that our young people know from whence we came. Um, I think the media has done a terrible job of presenting the African-American history. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think we, uh, most of our kids don't understand and cannot appreciate, you know, what they're grandparents and great-grandparents have gone through so that they can enjoy the things that they they enjoy now. Uh, I think it's, to piggyback on it and expand on it, I think it's also important so that young people, so that we can recognize what's happening to us now Mm -hmm. and put that in some kind of context. So I think not just so we can know where we came from, but know what's happening to us now and where we need to go into the future. Another thing, look how loosely the young people use the N-word. You That's know, another Just show. like, yeah, like you saying hello. Well, if they had that history behind them, they wouldn't use that so loosely. That's that, my opinion. That, and it's a valid opinion. <laughs> yes, when it, yes is. it is. <laughs> I, I will close uh-huh. by saying you read what she was to get when she, the courts did award her $14 in damages. 
Wow. Yeah, yes, that is a wow moment. But now uh, we're understanding that $14 then $14 now, not the same, but still. We don't know that she ever got it. But they wow, awarded they awarded it, it to her. Mm-hmm. Well, ladies, I think at some point we're going to have to have you back for another round two on this and perhaps some other topics. But for the audience listening, we certainly want to thank our guests, Gladys Devane and Liz Mitchell, two longtime contributors to Bring It On. They shared their respective insights on Indiana indentured servants and the legal battles of Mary Bateman Clark, Polly Strong, and a woman simply known as Elizabeth. These three women pursued their case for freedom before the Indiana Supreme Court. As mentioned at the top of the hour, in honor of Memorial Day, the Bring It On crew has prepared a special best of broadcast from our archives. Our final interview is from February 10th of 2014 and it features anchors Bev Smith and William Hosea once again. This time they are speaking with Dr. John McCluskey, Professor Emeritus of Indiana University, who came on to recap a discussion he led for the audience and cast members of the theoretical theatrical presentation of Matthew Lopez's 2010 play, The Whipping Man. The play is set in the post-Civil War South. Three men are tied to each other by history, faith, and are also bound by secrets. A badly wounded Confederate soldier returns home at war's end to find that his family has fled to the countryside. Remaining in in the city mansion are two former slaves, also raised by his family as Jews. With Passover upon them, the three men unite to celebrate the holiday, even as they struggle to comprehend their new relationships at a crossroad of personal and national history. Here now is the 2014 interview. Let's take you back to April of 1865. Robert E. Lee has surrendered at Appomattox, and a young Confederate soldier staggers home to Richmond, Virginia, to find the city in ruins and his family home in shambles. The soldier's family is Jewish. Two freed slaves await the return of the family. Like many Christian households of the period, the slaves have taken on the household faith. While they wait, the three Jewish men share an improvised setter to celebrate their ancestors' escape from slavery in Egypt. Did I say that right? Is it setter or cedar? Seder. 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 Okay. And while the three are no longer tied by ownership, they discover they remain bound by faith, family secrets, and the unsparing legacies of slavery. The Whipping Man is produced in association with the Jewish Theater of Bloomington. The theatrical presentation of The Whipping Man stars Brandon Wentz, Wardell Julius Clark, and Alfred Wilson. The performance takes place at the John Waldron Arts Center Auditorium from February the 7th through 22nd. We have invited Dr. John McCluskey, Professor Emeritus of Indiana University, to come on and recap a talkback he led for the audience and cast members on yesterday afternoon with the actors. Dr. McCluskey, welcome to Bring It On. Glad to be here. Let's start with the title, The Whipping Man. It's intriguing from the start. What does that mean to you, sir, and how can you frame that for the audience? The the Whipping Man is never seen uh, during the play, but he's a a sort of a force, a figure whose job it is to whip uh, uh, slaves who step out of line. And so if anybody has sat someone on the street or um, stolen something, they're taken to the whipping man, and the whipping man brutally, brutally uh, uh, beats them. We don't see that kind of violence at all on the, on, the, on the stage itself, 
but uh, we see the results of that on the stage. So is is that the only thing we see of the whipping man are the results of his conduct? Mm-hmm. The results of he's sort of always out there. You know, if you if you mess up, you're going to be sent to the whipping man. This and ominous figure. This omin- ominous mm-hmm. figure. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, at the end, we are surprised at what happens to the whipping man. But I can't divulge that right now because it's one of many, many surprises that pop up like, like, like cannon shots in uh, uh, scene two and scene four. Uh, the play consists of two acts, four scenes, two scenes in each act. But uh, when we get to scene two, all of a sudden, some things begin to change slowly. And when we get to scene four, it just takes off. Mm -hmm. And uh, what they've done in those four scenes with three actors is amazing. It's very efficient. They they put in a lot of history in those four scenes. Is this based at all on a true story? Uh, I doubt it. Uh, I doubt all all the facts uh, uh, about the whipping man are there. Uh, We do know of uh, brutal beatings that slaves Mm -hmm. received. Um, But whether or not there was an organized whipping man who had an office, so to speak, uh, for that purpose, uh, I don't know. However, the timing of the play, the historical moment of the play is accurate. He's right on the money. Um, To give you an example... Uh, That April was a monster April. Uh, Robert E. Lee surrendered. Um, They were dancing in the streets in Washington, D.C. Cannon shots were going off, parades and everything. They were banging on the White House door for Abraham Lincoln to come out and give a celebratory talk. He said, I'll do that that later. Um, Lincoln himself woke up that morning, that Friday morning, um, in a very, very good mood. Um, it's so good uh, that his wife was frightened by how happy he was, how jovial he was. Um, they took a carriage ride, um, and they were going to see a play that evening. Um, and on the very evening of uh, Friday the 10th, which, by the way, is Good Friday, and crosses with the Passover, the Jewish Passover. So we got two holidays, Jewish faith and Christian faith, mm-hmm. coming together that moment, mm-hmm. right? Um, and, but by... 10 o'clock that night, he was sitting in the audience, and that was when he was assassinated. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is when Dancing in the Streets took place in Richmond, Virginia, where this, the play is set. So we had two weird Dancing in the Streets, one because of the Union victory, one because Abraham Lincoln had been assassinated. Mm-hmm. So it's a, it's a tight kind of framework that we have here. And I have to give it to the author. He, he took full advantage of it. Uh, because he brought in Christianity and Judaism, uh, meshed him fairly well through the through the play. In terms of the title itself, The Whipping Man, mm-hmm. in terms of our culture today, many people would find the title, perhaps, or the act of whipping very heinous. And even in, corp- in parental acts or corporal punishment, no, that, that would be off limits. Mm-hmm. But would you frame it for the audience where did this piece actually come from, The Whipping Man? We touched on it a little bit, saying slavery, but for people to know vividly that this was really a way of life for slaves and oh, punishment for slaves. Yes, there are a number of um, uh, books of photography, a number of historical books uh, that are really shocking to see because you see the scars on the backs of, of African-American, primarily men, mm-hmm. but women also. And um, when we look at those, we said, who could have meted out that kind of punishment? Uh, it may not have been one person whose job it was, right. but it could be simply a cruel slave 
master who had power over that particular individual. So in terms of the audience looking at it today, um, it simply reflects the violence of the slave period. And in many ways, and you'll see this, you won't see violence on the stage, um, but you, violence is always in the background of this particular play and the character's motivations. The other piece that I find interesting, and William, I'm not trying to take over <laughs> any questions that you might have, but in terms of <laughs> stop, but in terms of religion and faith, typically what I remember about history that it was most associated slavery and Christian practices were really put together. Judaism, I don't remember much being discussed. This seems an unusual aspect for play as well. Uh, you, you know that was my question. <laughs> was it? <laughs> go, go ahead, Dr. McCluskey. Well, that, that's the, the twist on this uh, um, uh, play. Uh, when I first heard about it in 2010, I went to see the play in, in New York, and in the small caption that described the plot, I said, well, wait a minute. I knew there were uh, American Jews who held slaves, a small number. I knew some were implicated in the slave trade. I knew some some were implicated in building slave ships, right? Mm -hmm. So I said, well, this should be interesting. So we went to see it, and I don't claim to have figured out everything about the play. But when I got there, I could easily see how these things uh, mesh and and merge. Um, It's Richmond, Virginia. Uh, we're not talking about plantations. That's normally all the way we look at slavery. It's a big plantation, hundreds of slaves out picking cotton and singing, none of that. Most of the Jewish slave owners were merchants, were clerks, small-time businessmen. They did not own large tracts of land, which leads to the next question. Why would you fight for the Confederacy if there's anti-Semitism in the South? And you say, wait a minute, this doesn't make much sense at all. Mm-hmm. So you have two groups that are um, alienated, but one group has a foothold in terms of the commerce of a region, and so they're fighting, perhaps, uh, because they're loyal to the region. And you begin to think about that a little bit, and it says, well, why did African-American soldiers fight in the Revolutionary War, the Civil War, the First World War, or any wars, Vietnam, if they are oppressed at home? And some will say, because we think things will get better, we're fighting for a better place, and we may have some patriotism for our country. Mm-hmm. So we've got patriotism for the region, patriotism for the country. There's a line in the play that's very important. The young man who's wounded comes back and says, I didn't fight to keep slavery. I didn't fight to own slaves. I fought to save my home. And, and that is the, the sort of thread that runs through most of the accounts of Jewish uh, uh, soldiers during the Civil War. They were, they were tied to the region. They, you hear the same thing from Robert E. Lee. Mm-hmm. He says, look, I don't, slavery was not uppermost in my mind. What was uppermost in my mind was saving the South. That's my home. And so you have these strange contradictions. Why would you save a home with all that decay and destruction and punishment there? Why don't you solve that problem in your own house? And uh, the, the play just... Um, Cuts through a lot of layers and and levels. You know, you could ask the same question of African-Americans who fought in past wars. Right. Mm -hmm. Why would they fight for all the decay that is racism and discrimination? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But, you know, it it was home. Exactly. Where else were uh, were they going to go? Right. Exactly. But to get back to uh, 
to the play. It starts off, one white Confederate soldier is coming home, mm-hmm. and two African two freed slaves were waiting for the return of the family. So is this play, without giving too much of it away, is this suggesting that these three formed a bond, a relationship, and, and started to get on with their lives from that point? No. You, you would think that would happen. It'd be a nice, happy ending. But you're surprised at every turn. I mean, I sat in the audience saying, well, I can figure this out. I'm going to be I'm going to be here when the when the when he turns the corner. No, nah, he turned the other way. So each time we think there's a bond, we find out ah, he has peeled the onion and something else is coming forth. It's loaded with secrets, mm-hmm. and there's secrets between the all three of the men. There's secrets between the the absent father. Um, the secrets just as I say said before just pop up and pop up throughout the play. So so there's no easy there's no easy um, resolution to it. Uh, what we do know is that at the end, I can at least say this much, that the major figure, uh, the oldest figure, his name is Simon, he's the father, he leaves at the end of the play. He's going to find his wife and his daughter who have been sold back into slavery. Mm-hmm. Okay? He goes out of the door at the very end. It's raining, raining hard. And uh, we know some, something like 9-11, there's been a lockdown. Nobody's getting in and out of Washington until they find John Wilkes Booth and the people who perpetrated the assassination. So this man, knowing that his wife and daughter would not be sold north, they were sold to a slave master, and that would have to be south. So he has to go out into that weather to somehow find in this wilderness his wife and child in hostile territory. The south is just lost, and they see an African-American man, free or slave, he's in trouble, Mm -hmm. right? He's going to risk that to find his family. Now, that's the most courageous note, I guess, of the whole play. The two young men are left behind. And uh, when the audience gets there, they'll be, uh, they'll feel, they won't feel so good about the two men and their future. Uh, but they do form a bond. And uh, that bond is even deeper than what I'm trying to skirt around right now. Uh, you you're really, you are. <laughs> I'm like, okay. right. I'm trying to crack the, what, this story. What the, what the bond is that these two men, one uh, black, one white, one, 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 uh, both Jewish, um, are closer than what they think they are. They share blood. They don't know that. It's mm-hmm. one of to the, the very end. secrets. Right. Okay. That's, so I've given the big secret away. <laughs> and I suppose I'm reading our script that we read on the intro uh-huh. and the aspect of two freed slaves waiting for a family free and waiting. How do you balance those? Is there I'm assuming that the playwright and the actors have it waiting for us when we arrive in the theater to unfold. Why in the world would you sit still instead of going? They didn't know where to go. Right. Um and this happened in a lot, lot of cases. People just didn't know they they stayed behind because they knew that world as, as brutal it's as home. it was, mm-hmm. yeah, and it had order. Un- un- unfortunately, um, but they they had to go out in the world where they had to remake themselves. They had to find a home. They had to find land. They had to, in some cases, create new names for themselves. Um, in an early moment in the play, the um, Simon, the older man, is going to help save the soldier's leg. And the young man, John, says, we're free now. We don't have to do anything. We can leave. We don't have to be here helping him. And he's still trying to give you orders. 
Um, but the, now the shoe's on the other foot. Simon is the king of the household now, and he's the savior. John is, is the person who's also in, in power now, and this man is crippled by his, by his wound. So your, your question is correct. Why not, if you're free, go out into the world? Uh, but what that meant was improvising uh, a new self, and they weren't pushed to the point of doing that, believe it or not, uh, if, we believe the, if we are to believe the play. Mm-hmm. Okay, we talked about a couple of things that Bev mentioned in part of the intro. Uh, they were bound by faith. We talked about some, you told us, one of the family secrets. <laughs> but the unsparing legacies, there has to be a huge divide between the, the, the two different legacies of the, the Confederate soldier and the freed slaves. Mm-hmm. Does the uh, play go go into that at all? No, not as much as you might think. Uh, they are bound by, and John and Simon says this, that a family is defined by shared faith. We share a faith. Now, despite that, there's brutality on the part of the father and the grandfather who are white. They're right? not mm-hmm. part of the three, though, right? No, no, no. The father, we don't see the father or the grandfather. Okay. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that <clears throat> legacy is still this notion of home and family, which they, which they share. The, um, what's his name? Caleb, who is a soldier, has traveled throughout the South doing, his, doing the campaigns, fighting the Union uh, soldiers. And he has seen the brutality that has happened in other parts of the South and plantations. And so there's this strange thread that you will hear, that the audience will hear, that you're much better off with us, where we at least gave you the, the, the Torah, the holy, the holy book, mm-hmm. where we at least fed you, where we beat you only sparingly. Um, uh, if you put your situation up against other people and other plantations in, uh, in, in Virginia. But, but no, they realize that the South is lost. They are now in power. They don't have to take any orders anymore. And uh, that's one of the sometimes funny part of the of the uh, of, of the play. Uh, one thing that I tried to tease out with the audience yesterday was um, the whole notion of being able to read and write, and how powerful that is in the play. For example, John uh, is African American, and he's an alcoholic, but he can read, and his mistress taught him to read, and when he taught him to read. He, he read the, uh, the Torah very closely and started raising questions. His question was, can a Jew enslave a Jew? Same way with the Bible. Can a Christian enslave a, a, a Christian? In the 19th century, that was a major question. People, how can I get out of this? How can I get out of this? Um, so he's a threat to the father. The father really doesn't want him around very much. Okay. Um, the uh, soldier writes a letter to his loved one, who is black, who's the daughter of Simon. And he writes a letter, and he says, I'm going to teach you to write as soon as we get back together, because once you can write, you can understand me and where I'm coming from. So that gives her a certain kind of power and equal, an e- equal share. Um, the two young men can read, so they have to instruct um, get name, Simon in the Haggadah. They do a ritual, the, Jew, mm-hmm. the Seder ritual on the stage. And so they have to help him through so they both can read. Now... There's a lot of history, a lot of black history in that, in that whole cluster of things. And um, the author, he wasn't mentioned in the program, but the author uh, knew the narrative of the life of Frederick Douglass. And one of the major moments in Douglass is when Sophia, the mistress, teaches him to read. 
and, and he's doing the ABCs, ABCs. And the master comes into the room and screams at her. says, how dare you teach him to read? says, you teach him to read, you give him an inch, you'll take a, what we do, they would say a mile, perhaps. Mm-hmm. And, all, and that relationship sort of dried up at that particular point. Well, young Frederick said, well, look, if, that, if he's so angry, then something is wrong with that system. So I'm going to learn as much language as I possibly can. And in today's terms, if you teach a child to read and write, you're giving him power. Right. You, he, may, he may, in fact, go out and read the Constitution. He may... He may decide, he may read the Bible more closely. He may decide to run for the Senate. He may decide to be a, a U.S. Supreme Court. Heaven knows, he might be President of the United States. That's the danger right there. And so the system, that, that, that evil system, knew that. And so they, so they tried to keep it under lock and key. By the way, for her to teach him to read was illegal. It was illegal to, to teach slaves the ABCs. So that's embedded like a jewel in this particular play. And so we see the the danger there. There was a talkback session held between, I believe, the audience and were you facilitating Mm -hmm. and also the cast members. How were folks impacted either from either side being players, actors and actresses in the play or as audience members? Uh, it did affect a lot of people. There were some great questions asked. Uh, many of them sitting around, well, what really constitutes a family? You know, is, and one, one gentleman stood up and says, well, family means you, that's something you're just stuck in. You can't pick your family. <laughs> <laughs> that drew a laugh from, from everybody. <laughs> um, but, but people, once they got out of the fact that there were Jewish, um, people with Jewish faith implicated in slavery, someone to deny that. Uh, but we, there was just too much proof that could be pointed to mm-hmm. outside of that stage to uh and so they were they were quieted down but the emotional impact of um of some of the moments in the play uh, people people were stunned by um not crying not in tears mm-hmm. or anything but they you, you could tell in their faces they were um impacted by affected by it. and they raised very good questions to one another and to the the panelists on stage the actors were good one one sat in the audience and two sat on stage sort of flanking us and and they went into um not so much its effect on them but uh what they learned historically from the from the play they were they were good i thought it was a good talk back session but i'm biased <laughs> <laughs> so did the play um explore any of the uh, horrors or brutality from that period only only through the whipping man um you, you knew that it was happening outside that that uh, um battered house the house was abandoned it was in bad shape you see on the set so you know there's war out there but in terms of any um punishment penalty uh related to directly to slavery mm-mm. only the this ghost man out there who mm-hmm. who just beats people uh mercilessly as we have about a minute left until we wrap the show, uh-huh. what is the point of art like this? What do we take away? You mentioned moments, people having moments during the play. What is one to do if you have a moment in the play? Great question, because uh, there's a line right in the play that defines, uh, Simon says, we're, we're Jewish people because we uh, raise questions. We wrestle with, is there a God or not? Um, we wrestle with is there morality or not, but we may not have answers, but we ask questions. And I think a play like this 
will give you more questions to ask than answers fed to you. And I think that's the, that's the joy of it. It's not all locked up and real neat. But you walk out of the play and say, well, how can I apply that to my life? How can I apply that to society? How can I apply that to conversations around uh, President Obama and mm-hmm. how he's being dealt with in the, in the group, uh, in, the, in, the, in the media? So it, it's, it, it reflects a lot of things about family uh, and what defines family. So there's a lot of questions, I think, remaining. But it's solid enough so that when you walk away, you, you can just say somebody just threw some lines together. This is very tight, very, very tight. And you can reflect back to it. So I hope people, you know, can come and see it and um, even better talk about it once they, once they leave. We hope you enjoy both of these special Memorial Day broadcasts on Bring It On. Bring It On has an open submission pro- policy. If you have an idea for this program, let's hear it. Send an email directly to our volunteer staff. The address is bringiton at wfhb.org. We want to make sure to share everything and anything affecting the African-American community with our listening audience in Bloomington and beyond. The email address, once again, is bringiton at wfhb.org. Bring It On has um, Clarence Boone as its producer. Production support comes from WFHB's news director, Wes Martin. Bring It On has a board engineer, engineer by the name of Chantal Lafontante. That's me. And I'm also today's announcer. Our original theme music was crafted by Jamal Afrion. Be sure to tune in next Monday, June 3rd at 6 p.m. for another exciting episode of Bring It On, right here on your community radio station, WFHB. You've been listening to Bring It On, a volunteer-powered production of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana. Bring It On is your forum for open dialogue on the people, issues, and events affecting the African-American community in South Central Indiana and beyond. Send your comments, suggestions, and story ideas directly to the Bring It On staff. The email address is bringit at wfhb.org. That's bringit at wfhb.org.